Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the House of Pod, a show where we pull back the curtain on the world of medicine, we answer questions about your health, and we interview great guests. I'm Joe, and I'm not a doctor. And I'm Lizzie. And I'm Kaveh. And we're two gastroenterologists. What's a gastroenterologist? You know, the doctors who work with your digestive system. Say like, what? You know, your liver, your pancreas, your intestines. Where now? Your butt, Joe. It's your butt. Oh. And now Welcome back to the House of Pod. I am Kabe. I'm Lizzie. And sitting in with us today, we have a special guest, our brand new intern, intern Allie. Allie, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's good to be here again. Yeah, so... Hi, intern uh, Allie. For the, for the listeners, um, we've actually done an episode with Allie where we sort of go over his origin story, but it's been shelved because of the worldwide pandemic. And we're going to get to it because I think it's going to be a really good episode. It's really funny. But until then, Ali, tell everyone like who you are, what you are, what you do for the show. Uh, yeah, well, I am the new intern for the pod. I work with the Instagram uh, occasionally. I am a b- big fan. Listen to every episode, of course. And uh, right. um, Ali is also my nephew. He is 17. 17. So you're going to bring a little youth culture to the show, huh? You're going to tell us what's hot, what's hip, what's happening, what's here, what's now? Yes, exactly that's that. Good. That's exactly <laughs> the kind of back and forth that we're looking for here. I think um, the origin story is really fantastic because everyone wants to understand how you got to like the peak, the pinnacle of where you are now, which is the intern for the house of pot. So like right. everyone's going to be like, like, how did he get there? What is his story? He might, because he we might know. Be peaking too early. That's the problem. I mean, cause where do you totally. go? House of pot? It's possible. Yeah, exactly. Cause and you're spending so much time on our show. 
Yeah, um, yeah. And tell the listeners like what the average weekly time spent, you know, for all this work, you know, if they're going to invest in your origin story, just let them know how hard it is. No, I, I, I devote a lot of time, seconds, minutes sometimes to, <laughs> uh, the Instagram, you know, if it gets really strenuous, maybe five minutes, but you know, that's when it gets like, you know, that, that's when I really feel needed now. Yeah. Right. You're like, I spend five minutes when I lose Wi-Fi. It's when I spend five minutes on the Instagram account. It's my good deed for the week. Right. Well, we get what we pay for, which in this case is nothing at all. Um, let me ask you guys a, a question. This is just, I'm just going to throw this one out there. This is totally random. It has nothing to do with our upcoming guests. But what do you guys think about education? Hmm. Is it, I don't know, good, important? Good? Completely, completely unrelated, not related to the interview at all. I think it's especially more now during this, uh, you know, weird time with all the distance learning and how people are having to adapt to education online. Right. Because of the coronavirus and the pandemic and the quarantining and the frustrating, the homeschooling, it's like so important for everyone, right? Well, it's yeah. so funny you guys say that because our guest that we're about to have come up is Salman Khan. He is the creator of a free online education platform that I think has pretty much revolutionized education. And uh, he's teaching your kids now and or you. And if he's not, he will be soon, basically. He'll be responsible for their education now more than ever. Anyways, really great guy, really great guest. Stay tuned for the episode. Um, my audio in the episode is, uh, I'm going to give you guys a little spoiler, it's a little bit uh, wonky just because I'm doing it from the hospital on call, but uh, it's fine. It's the apocalypse. What do you want? You're not going to get perfect sound quality in the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. It's good enough for this. So I think you guys will appreciate it. Anyways, stay tuned. It's a great interview. Uh, he's a great guest. And as always, Reach us at Twitter at the House of Pod. We're also on Instagram, and you can find us on Facebook. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, email us at hopquestions at gmail.com. That's hopquestions at gmail.com. Stay tuned. Today's show, we have Salman Khan, the creator of the free online learning platform, Khan Academy. It has over 60 million registered users, not to mention unregistered ones, over a billion video views, used in 200 countries, teaches everything from science to history, civics, and these numbers are all pre-corona pandemic, so I can only imagine what they are now. And your work is more important than ever. Salman, thank you for uh, coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Kaveh. Uh, over a billion kids have seen their schools closed down around the world. I'm, you, I'm sure you have a better sense of numbers than me, but what I saw was about 1.4 billion. I'm sure it's probably more than that. And they're all looking for resources online. Teachers who aren't used to doing this are looking for resources. Um, and you guys uh, have become really one of the preeminent sources, if you weren't already, uh, in regards to, to teaching people online. So. Let me ask you, first question I have is, is there a silver lining in regards to, to what could happen 
in education because of this pandemic? Yeah, I hope there is because there's a lot of non-silver linings. <laughs> so I hope we can get that. Yeah, I mean, to your point, you know, we were uh, we were having about 20 million learners come every month pre-crisis. We had about 30 million minutes of learning per day pre-crisis. And as soon as we started seeing the mass closures around the world, uh, our traffic is a roughly 3x of what it typically is. So we're now at about 100 million learning minutes per day. Uh, and we're seeing that pretty consistently around the world. It's, it's more pronounced in some of the geographies where we have better translations and things like that. Uh, but uh, obviously suboptimal uh, uh, for schools to have to be closed with little to no notice. We realized this was one of that moments when we saw that the schools were closing that, you know, you, you kind of look left and look right and say, I guess this is us. I guess we, <laughs> we, we've got to step up now. And so we, one, we made sure that our engineering team felt comfortable with the load that we might see and we did end up seeing. And then we said, well, what, what do parents and teachers need? We have a lot of the content, we have the practice, we have the tools for them, but with very little planning, they're going to need supports. So we started running webinars for them. We started publishing things like daily schedules for them so they can structure their days and not be overwhelmed. We started putting out learning plans for them. And if, you know, to your question about silver linings, I think some of the silver linings might be caused by some things that are very not good right now. So uh, right now, uh, you have a big issue with kids who don't have internet access at home. Those kids are pretty much out of the game right now. Yeah. And um, we're, you know, we're trying to do what we can from our vantage point to help. But my hope is, is that it's, it's making the digital divide and the, the negatives of the digital divide very clear. And so a silver lining might be that over the next several months, uh, there's more action at a government or corporate level. You know, what I tell is, you know, these stimulus packages, there are a trillion here, a trillion there. You could probably get every home in America free internet and a device for on the order of several tens of billions. So less than a percent of some of these stimulus packages. And that would have clear economic benefits, not just from an education, but also from a, you know, the parents could look for job postings. You could do remote work. There's all sorts of things that you can do. Frankly, it's just for your mental health right now, you need access to, to, to the internet. Um, so that might be a silver lining. Another silver lining is, you know, this notion of school closures, people are rightfully treating it as an emergency right now, but frankly, it was always happening. We always had this thing called summer vacation, which was three months of school closures. And there's well-documented data that, that not only do kids not learn over those three months, they forget over those three months. And it's three months where middle class and upper middle class and affluent children are able to go to enriching camps, sometimes academic camps, they get more support from their parents, uh, while the kids who don't have resources don't get those things. And so they fall further and further behind. So you have an academic gap that forms. And you see similar things with after school as well and other, other breaks. And so COVID just puts it in more stark relief. And so one silver lining that might come out of this is as we as a society build a habit of learning not being bound by time and space, that summer, the expectation changes, that summer is a time for learning, that breaks are a time for learning, that you can learn anytime, anywhere. I think the necessity of uh, putting more agency on students uh, and is actually a, it's gonna be hard in the short term, but it's actually a good long-term thing for the students because the 21st century is all about, you know, learning how to learn and how to have that agency. It's not about, you know, getting spoon-fed content. And, um, you know, a lot of these notions of personalization and competency-based learning, which always had a, I think, a strong intellectual argument to them, I think are going to become that much more relevant now. Uh, and you can imagine, you know, no one really knows what school's going to be like when we get back. 
whether we start like normal, whether it's shift based because everyone has to be six feet apart, whether you start up for a few weeks and then you have to shut back down. And so I think it's making everyone think about how do you get the best of both worlds when school is in session? How does online empower that? And that way, if you're using it when school is in session, when school goes out of session, you can very fluidly lean on those tools a little bit heavier. You heard it here first. Mr. Khan wants summer school for everyone. Yay. No, um, I think the, the focus has um, been so much on unemployment and, you know, disruption of our economy and how to get back to work. So it is nice to think about how this can, um, we can redirect some of these funds and focus to kids in classrooms or, or again, I guess in this day and age, our classroom is our home. Um, so maybe this really will help spur the innovation that, that you've had, you know, in the classroom. Cause I think about school and education as being really bogged down in so much bureaucracy and so much just slow paced in change and innovation. Um, so, you know, these are all the silver linings. So now some of the bad stuff, what do you think the kids normally get out of being in school together? And like, what do you think the real benefits of being together are? And how do you see that kind of, um, the negative effects as well? Yeah, you know, when school is is a is done right, and hopefully it's it's this is the case in most places, yeah, it's where you learn to socialize, it's where you get that human support, it's where you learn to resolve conflict, it's where you learn to work as a team. And you can get some of that uh through virtual classrooms on Zoom or whatever else, but it's not obviously exactly the same thing. And you're obviously not gonna be able to play tag on Zoom in the same way or hide and seek. Uh, and, and some of those things that actually obviously require more physical physicality, the sports, the drama, et cetera, et cetera. You, you know, I mean, if I'm if if we want to talk silver linings, I, I, I do think some kids have to go to physical school environments that they they are they are hard for them. They're bullied. They, they you know, potentially physically bullied. Um, they don't feel safe. So, so for some of those, there, there might be a bit of a silver lining in that there's, you know, most of us adults have repressed our memories of middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's either you, you, know, you yourself and probably everyone had their moment where even their best friends kind of did something to them that they're like, wow, that was sociopathic <laughs> behavior. Um, but you've, we've all for sure seen it happen to other kids. And you're like, I can't even imagine if that happened to me, what I would do. And so that, that is a, a bit of a silver lining for some of the students. But obviously the, the, the big picture is you know, in a healthy class environment, not getting that socialization, that in-person, that human contact, that's a, that's a big deal. And it's unfortunate. And so what we're trying to do, you know, when you, the approximation for that is doing live video conferencing, but even when you're doing it, it shouldn't be just a, a teacher or someone lecturing. It should be, how do we drive interaction? Can we talk to each other? Can we have a Socratic dialogue? Can we do games, simulations, uh, which is a best practice when you're in, in the room together and I think is even more important when you're virtual. I think we're all like, all the students right now are kind of like really having, being like forced to adapt to this like weird time right now. And like you said, you, we're seeing a lot of like use of online learning, especially like Khan Academy kind of substitute for, um, you know, teaching that we're not exactly getting right now. Um, I do have like a question about kind of like specific stuff that's happening right now, uh, AP testing is completely different now. We're doing it like from home, we're doing it on a browser, we have to send stuff. How are you guys like adapting to that? Like I know, it, I mean, can you guys really adapt to it? It's such like a short thing, like hoping, you know, hopefully this never happens again, we never have to see this again. But how are you guys preparing for that? 
Yeah, you know, we're close. We're, we're very close to the college board who administers the AP test. So we've been in close conversation with them. Uh, you know, this is obviously a new format of the test and it's going to be a different AP test than what I took when I was in high school. So I, I can't claim that I fully know what it's going to be. Uh, with that said, the college board has reassured us and has reassured students that essentially, if you're prepared for one, for the old test, you will be prepared for this one. And so, you know, Khan Academy, we do have courses like AP Stats, AP Calc, Physics, Chem, Bio, even American History, Civics, Econ. And so we feel pretty confident that if a student is well prepared on those, if they work on the exercises, they get to a mastery on Khan Academy on those courses, and then maybe a week or two before the AP test, they work on some, you know, example free response questions. And we have videos on that. And, you know, the best way to consume that is actively learn. You know, if, if it's say me making the video, I always tell people pause it, try to work it through it on your own. Uh, you do some of like that with some of the, um, the old example free response questions. I think you'll be, you'll be pretty prepared. And Mr. Count, what are the questions on the test? What are the questions on the No, AP I'm just test? kidding. Okay. I'm just kidding. I just wanted Actually, to get Allie. I right here since I'm... you asked. No one asked. <laughs> I just wanted to give Allie yeah. a little bit of a head start, you know? Switching gears a little bit, but I think still related. You've also worked a little bit uh, on curriculum for medical students. And so we have a lot of medical student listening uh, listeners, and we have doctors, obviously, and people in the medical profession. Um, and you've tried to implement this, this concept of the flipped classroom model. Can you tell us and tell our listeners a little bit about what the flipped classroom model means and how maybe it would be useful in med medical education as well? Yeah, and to be clear, you know, I'm not the originator of the flipped classroom. And to some degree, what we advocate is, is, is slightly different than flipped classroom, but I'll explain what it is and I'll explain the nuances. So, you know, in classic, especially I would say STEM courses, it happens a lot. You know, I, I sat in a couple of my wife's med school classes. It's, they tend to be uh, lecture-based. And then, you know, you go home and you either do some problem sets or you study. And then, you know, the lecture and then there's homework, lecture, homework. And then you, uh, at some point, you take a test. And the, the, the aha of flipped classroom is, is lecture truly the best use of time when a bunch of people are in the room together? Uh, now we have modalities like video, on-demand video, that you can access anytime, anyplace, from your phone, from your computer, from anywhere. Wouldn't it be better to make the, le the lectures as videos and ideally in kind of bite-sized, searchable, uh, very engaging formats? And that way, when people come to the room together, you can do more problem solving. And it makes sense to do the problem solving in the room because by definition, when you're doing problem solving, sometimes you get stuck. And it's nice to have the support of your peers and the support of your, of your teacher. And you know, to our earlier conversation, the value of physical in-person learning, if you're just giving a lecture to 300 kids, there actually isn't a lot of value other than like we're smelling the same air type of thing. Uh, but uh, if we're all interacting and helping each other, then there's a lot of value to it. So that's the notion of a flipped classroom. What we traditionally view as class time, which are lectures, happens at home. And what's traditionally done viewed as homework, the problem solving, happens in the class. Now, I want to point out, you know, to some degree, this has been, been, this has been happening for 2,000 years or 2,500 years. Socrates did this. You know, do your, every humanities seminar has been doing this for thousands of years where you do the reading ahead of time and then you come to class and we interact with each other. Uh, you know, there's, there's very few humanity seminars where the teacher will read the, the book to you. Uh, but in, especially in science, math uh, courses, uh, it's been the other way around that we've, we've somehow viewed the class as a time to just disseminate information. And so 
that's what the flip classroom is. And that immediately gets benefits. But then as soon as you flip, it actually unlocks a lot of other things. The whole reason why classes have historically had to move in lockstep where everyone learns at the same pace is because if you're, if you're giving a lecture to 300 people, well, there's only one pace at which you can give that lecture and you just have to pick someplace in the middle and hope not too many people are lost and not too many people are bored. But if class time is no longer about lecture, well, then all of a sudden, if it's about problem solving, there's a possibility that everyone works on different problems according to their level. And it's actually, there's a benefit that people are at different levels. That if I'm on a more basic thing and, and Kaveh knows how to do it, he can help me. It doesn't have to be just the teacher who's supporting the students. And so you could talk about flipped classroom. Once again, not our idea. Socrates has arguably been doing this for a, from, from age immemorial. And, and probably he's not still doing it, just to be clear. He's we don't not know, doing it Well, we don't, you know, who knows what happens after death. But, the, <laughs> um, but I'm guessing people did it even before Socrates. And... Um, but there's a chance of even going further where people can learn at their own time and pace. Now you can have mixed uh, ability level, mixed age cohorts, a lot more peer to peer. And so that goes even, you could call that beyond the flip classroom. You know, there's all these more complicated ways of describing that mastery learning, personalized learning, things like that. Actually on that last point, I, I have actually been hearing a lot about this whole like more personalized learning thing where you have people instead of like more grade levels and like, cause you know, we have like that to an extent, right? You can take an AP class if you want to take an AP class, but I have heard a lot. And I know some places do this where it's like you test into an area and then like you take the class that's like at your uh, level. Do you think that's like ever going to be like really fully, I mean, do you think it's going to pick up speed? Do you think people are going to like ever kind of put that, put down like this old, like, you know, age grade style? And do you think people are going to ever like move towards more uh, personalized learning? I, I, I think so. I mean, you know, the form of personalized learning that we have right now, I mean, what you're describing is kind of tracking and uh, you know, what, what kind of happens is, the, the quote, and I'm doing air quotes for those who can't see me, uh, the, the quote, smart kids get to take algebra, geometry in eighth grade while the other kids take eighth grade math. Uh, and then, you know, when you get to your sophomore, junior, senior years, the quote, smart kids get to take the AP classes while the other kids don't. But once you're in any of these classes, they, they tend to move at a, at a fairly fixed, fixed pace. Uh, and if you don't know a concept, it's kind of like too bad. And that's why you have a lot of kids, you know, they're, they're, 70% of American kids, when they go to community college, have to take remedial math, which is essentially sixth or seventh grade math, which says, tells you that they were just promoted year after year at a fixed pace. They had all these gaps. There wasn't a, a system for them to really remediate those gaps. And then they go, to, they go to college and the college is saying, you're not even ready to learn eighth or ninth grade algebra yet. And so uh, the, the opportunity is like, you know, if you're taking an AP class right now, if you get a five on your AP, you get a good you know, top score, that's great. But if you get a one on your AP test, it's kind of like, yeah, you got a one. You're a one student. We'll call you Mr. One in AP Calculus for the rest of your life. That's not cool. You should continue. You should allow to just keep working on that. Uh, you know, if, if you if you're if you know your algebra 60% well by the end of the school year, we shouldn't label you as 60% student, an F student, whatever, a failure. We should say keep working on it. Keep working on it until you're going to get to a to 100%. I mean, in in, in other walks of life in sports. If I'm a, let's say I'm a, I'm good at other parts of basketball, but I'm just a horrible free throw shooter. People won't just say, Hey, too bad. You suck at free throws. As of June of 2015, you'll always be a 40% free throw shooter. They'll say, no, keep working on that. Cause that's important. Okay. Yeah. And so I think we need to work, go to a model where wherever you end at the end of the year, and, and obviously this can kind of go down to any level, wherever you are at the end of the unit, at the end of the lesson, 
you always have the opportunity and the motivation and the incentive to keep working on it, uh, I think is a, is, a, is a much better model. And so, you know, even on this college remediation issue, which is actually a major issue for a lot of states uh, where, you know, they're spending billions of dollars educating kids. And, and it's tough on the kids, too, because they're taking these non-degree, uh, non-credit bearing uh, remedial courses, which is a big predictor of not graduating but still having debt. You can imagine, you know, you take Algebra 2, which is essentially college algebra. If you only know it 60% well, you just keep working on Khan Academy. It might take you up to your junior year, or your senior year. But once you show that you have 90% mastery on Algebra 2, which is essentially college algebra, the college, the state, everyone says, yep, you don't have to take college algebra anymore. And for some kids, they could get to that point in a month. And some kids, it might take them two years. But it doesn't mean that one is smarter than the other. Yeah, yeah. Um, about the lecture series and making it accessible and bringing people to a small group or smaller groups for discussion. It really is so smart, right? Because lectures, if you do it in a way that's more streamlined, it's more probably diverse, like the classroom or quote unquote virtual classroom would be more diverse. The lectures will be more accessible and you can get rid of like these terrible lectures. Like we've all experienced people who are just the worst, least dynamic, least char uh, charming people up on stage and you're just desperate to get out of there, right? I mean, at least people who are like Kave and my, our age, who are in 40s and above, like where the only place you could learn was from this terrible, terrible person who held the platform, right? I mean, it's it's very smart. I, I remember distinctly having one medical school professor who came in and she was giving a lecture and it was so boring that in the middle of her lecture, she yawned herself. <laughs> like, which I think is sort of like, and it's like physiologically, you shouldn't be able to do that. It's like, you shouldn't be able to tickle yourself, but she was like so boring that she bored herself and she was just like, Oh God, I'm sorry. <laughs> so boring. <laughs> um, so uh, you, you may not uh, know a lot about this and, and we don't have to do it. We can always cut it um, if you don't, but I have a question about, I have a question about the USMLE step one. Mm. Uh, do you have any familiarity with that? I know that they're getting rid of the scoring. That's right. So it's this first step in the medical licensing process in the United States. It's traditionally taken at the end of the second year of medical school. And when Lizzie and I were first doing it, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was just kind of something you, you did a little bit of studying for, and then you kind of, no one took it that seriously. But now it's kind of a big factor in terms of being used by residency programs and selecting applicants. And over the last decade, its importance has only grown. And it's now cited as one of the major sources of stress in medical students' lives. So they just changed it to a pass-fail system. I mean, I have some thoughts about the pros and cons of this, but I want to hear if you had any thoughts about it. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. My wife's a physician. I remember when she was studying for it back when we were dating. So I know, I know that level. You know, it, it, my opinion on this would, would depend on, you know, I would defer to people in the medical field, to, to what degree does a score on this correlate with your ability to enter into certain specialties or perform as a doctor? If, if the scores do matter, if someone with a high score is going to be more capable in their, in their doctoring somehow, then I think it's a shame that we're kind of taking information out of it. Uh, but if there actually isn't a correlation and it was just kind of a somewhat arbitrary source of stress, then it's probably a good decision that they went to pass fail. I'm curious what y'all think. You know, I, I, I thought about this a little bit, and we've gotten questions about this um, before coronavirus. This is a lot of people are sending us emails and kind of we kind of forgot about it. But um, in my in my thoughts, so the pros of a graded system are that it's sort of 
one objective measure and allows certain students who come from a school without a lot of prestige or if they don't have connections to other places, you know, or connections to people with names, big names, it allows them to sort of shine a little bit. And it does assure some understood comprehension, some bar is set. But the truth of it is, I think it's an unnecessary stress. I don't think it, it selects for much better doctors. I don't know anybody who took it that seriously when we were doing it. I never thought it affected their uh, ability to be a doctor. And it really, I think it self-selects for people who had the money to pay for the courses and kind of makes people focus on that, that, that aspect of the test more than actually paying attention to what they should be learning in medical school. So I, I'm actually okay with the change. It may not be perfect and there's some minuses to it, but it's not like the system as it was was so great that we couldn't at least try something different. I, I disagree. I mean, I, I do think that it should be pass-fail, but my school, Kaveh, I'm so sorry to disagree with you in public, but- You're never supposed to disagree with me in public, sorry. I'm so sorry. We took it very seriously. We had like a month kind of off or chill between second year coursework and third year like clerkships where we were in the hospital learning how to be doctors. We had a month off and everyone took that time and studied a ton. We took it very seriously. Wow. And I know the problem with it is that we're already a high stress community. We're already- overachieving type A. So to add that extra crucial amount of stress, I know two kids who got addicted to like Ambien and, and alcohol, you know, like who suffered later in life because of the stress that started. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they told me that it started around studying for USMLE because it was such a stressful period and there was so much put on it that I totally agree with making things like that pass fail. You've already gotten into med school. Like just simmer down, like let the kids take a break. Like, you know, oh, I do, I do. But I'm just saying for us, it was, I felt that intensity. I'm someone who, you know, we've talked about on our show, Mr. Khan, I don't know if you've heard of the term gunner, but like, you know, Kaveh and I are both people who avoided the gunners in the world. So like, I didn't feel that pressure. I just, but I did take it like a job, like every day woke up, set an alarm, trying to be like quarantining. I was stuck in my room like all day and all night trying to make a schedule for studying. It was terrible. It was one of the worst months like of my life. Oh man, what a bummer. I didn't, I didn't know. I know. I wish we were friends then, Kaveh. I know I would have calmed you down a little bit. (laughs) I I think I probably would have been overall good influence on you. Meh. Uh, Ali, do you have any other questions for Mr. Khan? Uh, well, I mean, I do have one that's, I mean, I don't want to like distract from this, um, but it kind of has to do with this like grading change. Um, and I have had uh, discussions with a lot of people about like, you know, how grades are currently like, you know, a, like you're talking about how we shouldn't label like somebody as like a 60% student for the rest of their life. Um, and on that topic, I've heard the debate a lot of people are talking about is whether you should, in schools, you should value uh, the ability to do something over the ability to not be able to do something, but then learn how to, like, what should we value? Should we value a person who can go in knowing everything or a person who starts knowing not much, but then improves and they show that they have like a good capacity for learning kind of like which of those should be more weighted or if either. Yeah. I mean, when we talk to people in admissions and you know, they, they tend to be pretty savvy at kind of students potential and that's what they are actually looking at. And if I'm understanding your question, right, I think, the latter are definitely the students that they, they're intrigued by, the students that are on kind of a, a, a positive trajectory. They're, because they have this meta skill of pushing themselves out of their comfort zone uh, and growing, uh, their potential is, you know, it's not well-defined, it's going to be high, uh, versus a student who might be at a current high state, but 
seem somewhat fixed in that and fixed, you know, there's all this research about fixed and growth mindset, you know, the fixed mindset, even if it's a fixed at a high state, oftentimes can be debilitating because if you say, if you say I'm a smart person in, in whatever domain, um, sometimes if it's a very fixed mindset, you, you, you might be afraid to take on a challenge because it might undermine your self-perception uh, to take, take on something challenging. So, you know, all else equal, I would take the, the latter. Now, obviously there's, you know, admissions in med school or undergrad. Uh, there is some base level of preparedness uh, that folks for sure care about that, you know, they, they want students who can come and be able to handle the work and the level of rigor on the campus. But um, yeah, I think it's much more about, about growth. And, you know, I, I've even seen that in my own life is you in high school and college uh, and, you know, grad school to some degree as well. Everything is so seemingly objectively measured and people will compare their USMLE scores or their SAT scores or their grades and everything is stack ranked. And it's very easy, even for many of us who, who are quite good, you always see those people who are, who have scores that much better, who have that much more perfection. And it's very easy to believe that, oh, no matter what, no matter what I do, those people are always going to be ahead. And once you um, enter into the real world, you realize that, no, it's kind of like there's a zone of people that, you know, they're all capable and they want to do things in the world. But out of that zone, it's not the people who are at the top of the scores who necessarily are at the top. It's, it's, the, it's the people with that latter mindset, the people who are always willing to take risks, not afraid to fail. Uh, you know, make you know, form good connections with other people, skills that aren't frankly measured by any of these tests, right, uh, right. entrepreneurialism, whatever you want to call it. Right. Uh, those are the folks that uh, have done have done more interesting things. So, do you think that calls into question like the concept? I mean, of standardized tests, like is that like a fundamental flaw in education and trying to compare people? I understand if all things being equal, you need something to distinguish them, but I, I would argue what you're saying, growth mindset, creativity, entrepreneur spirit, you can't measure in a standardized test, right? Yeah. You know, standardized tests, I think they, they fall victim to more of how people use them than them somehow being inherently good or bad. Oh, I, I think, you know, I would say, would, would people prefer non-standardized tests? <laughs> it becomes, and I, I think some people do. Some people like the, the lack of clarity. Uh, and a world where, you know, a grade has no meaning because it's completely different in one place versus another. And, you know, and, and people forget the history. Standardized tests were introduced uh, to level the playing field is what Kaveh was talking about before that, you know, historically in undergrad admissions or in med school admissions or residencies, if you knew people, if you went to a famous high school or a famous undergrad, people would take your transcript that much more seriously. And now if you have standardized tests, you can show that you're just as good as another kid you know I, I grew up as a I went to a Grace King High School in Metairie Louisiana no one had ever gone northeast for education in any way shape or form you know my my uh, guidance counselor when I said I wanted to go to MIT said well Michigan is cold and and so it was it was <laughs> and if there so wasn't cute. something like an SAT or any other type of standardized test I think it would have been very hard for me to stand out a bit in a, you know, relative to the kids from Stuyvesant or, um, right. or Phillips Andover or, or something like that. So it has value, but the key is to view it in perspective. It's not the end all and be all. It shouldn't be defining of who you are. Uh, and I think, you know, what's interesting, the admissions officers don't view it as the end all and be all. They kind of just view it as, okay, you know, this is a pretty academically rigorous place. If a student gets, yeah, 1400-ish, yeah, they'll probably be able to handle it. And then they start looking at other things. 
but the students and sometimes their parents and sometimes their schools get obsessed with, oh, you got 1480, they got 1510, you should take it again. <laughs> Even right. though, you, you know, uh, I actually yesterday I interviewed, we have a little live stream and I interviewed the head of admissions of University of Chicago. And he was like, I asked him like, what are things that you've seen that you just, you know, can't believe happened? And he said, there was a student who got a 1570 on their SAT the first time they took it, I think their sophomore year in high school. And then they took it eight more times <laughs> to get it to a 1600, somehow thinking that mattered. And all it did is give the school a massive red flag. I have a very important question. Did the kid get the 1600? I think he did eventually. Right. But and the, the direction would you accept showed, a kid like that? I wouldn't. I'd be no, like, they oh, didn't. They didn't. No, that's oh. what, that, that, was, that was the moral of the story. They didn't accept the student. Right. Uh, because Good. they said there's some type of strange behavior going on here. And I feel bad for the kid a little bit because, you know, you don't know. You're 16 years old. Yeah. You're just trying to improve yourself. But right. right. Well, does it bum you out that it's like this whole industry of test taking and tutoring and, you know, and, and just the commodifying, making it a commodity, the education and, and studying for the test? Not, not the learning, the studying, right? And the yeah. Well, you know, it, it, yes and no. So I, I do think the whole industry of test prep is not good. Uh, it, it creates a perception of inequity and probably maybe generates inequity. That's one of the reasons we're the official practice partner with the college board. We're the, we have the official practice for the SAT, for the LSAT, and a, few, and a test that uh, the ETS does for teacher licensure. But when we did it, we, when we partnered with the college board, we said, and the college board was very clear on this, we don't want to just be like test prep. This is how you guess. This is how you, I mean, obviously it's okay to have some test taking strategies, but we wanted you to get prepared for college and as evidenced by the SAT. And, you know, so I tell kids even have no plans of taking the SAT. I was like, you should, especially in during school closures right now, I say, go look at our SAT practice because it has math, reading and writing. And it has the core skills you need actually to be college ready. So even if you don't even have to take the SAT, you should do that. We have some good efficacy results. And by the way, if you do take the SAT, it will show that you are now more, uh, more college ready. Uh, so I think there's a value in, in that type of thing. Uh, yeah. But I, I think it, it's, it's more of just when it becomes an obsession um, or people put more weight on it than they should, that it, it becomes a huge issue. Yeah. yeah. You know, your, your videos are so important. They're so great. They're so helpful. Do you ever just think about making videos that teach people random things like, you know, how to be at a party, how to like date? Do you ever like, well, I'm not sure if I'm totally qualified for some of that, but how about so, like, how, how about rooting for sports teams? Rooting for sports. <laughs> so actually I, mean, I do have dating videos. They're not public. So this was a controvert because you know, I would see family members and they're doing these irrational things. Like they're, you're, they're dating and I'm like, oh, so you think you're going to marry this person? They're like, no, I would never marry this person. And then I was like, and I would literally get out a whiteboard and I'm like, okay, time is an axis. And I would like, and, and I would put a decision tree out. I was like, okay, every day that you wait, given that you've already come to the conclusion you're not marrying this person, you are just making your pain, your future pain greater. And it's amazing how uncomfortable people get with a decision tree like that because it, uh, it forces them to think about reality like beyond the next hour. And, uh, but they're not published videos. Uh, Do you because, think that we could get access to them and have only know, our listeners? No, it's, it's been uh, declared within here. my family that it is only, it is only for family. I, I could share them with Ali. I think he, he could, he could uh, he I don't know. I, I, you seem like a rational person who wouldn't get into momentum dating with someone. 
Um, <laughs> I mean, he's 17. He would get into anything with anyone, please. Oh, <laughs> uh, you do not have uh... a... <laughs> I don't know him that well. I'm just saying. Himself? No, he well, can't. There's... I put him on mute. He can't defend himself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it is... I mean, there are interesting... There's a lot of life skills I've wanted to convey to my own children. Um, and I have been making them as kind of a family collection of videos, but I have not put them out there because now I have all these stakeholders like boards and donors oh. that might get weirded out if all of a sudden, you know, Sal's drawing decision trees on dating. Yeah, we can't have your reputation tarnished. And I'm teasing about Ali's standards. He has much higher standards. That was a joke. Oh, yeah, I don't think he would ever thank stay in a relationship where he's not going to marry the person. Yeah. Exactly. All right, man. Well, thank you so much. We don't want to take up any more of your time. I just, uh, let me real quick say this. Um, the the first time or one of the first times I met you was back in like 2007, maybe. And you had just started making the videos. You just started getting some momentum on them. And I remember we were at like a dinner party and, and uh, someone was like, Hey, you got to check out these videos. And, and he, he's doing like this, this video stuff. And I'm like, Oh man, I don't want to hear about another Silicon Valley douche just doing some new project. I don't have the energy for it. But then you started showing us the thing that you were doing and it was one of your first ones, early ones. And you were so earnest about it and you were so passionate about it. And it was so impressive to see it really, it really like right then I knew it was something sort of special. I'm like, this is, this is awesome. This guy's pretty dope. And it's it shows true. you enough, enough delusion can power you through a lot. We need delusion mixed with truth and integrity that yeah. we don't see enough of that. So we do appreciate yeah. your mission at least. What you do is so important. It's really influential. It's really wonderful. And for, from all the parents out there now more than ever looking mm -hmm. for help, teaching their kids and themselves about things. Thank you for Khan Academy and all the stuff you've been doing. We really appreciate it. No, thank y'all. Thanks for having me. Is there anything you want to mention? Any um, ep, uh, stream or Is there anything publication? that the House of Pod can give the Khan can... Academy a boost on? Well, you know, it never hurts to remind folks. I know a lot of the folks listening might be med students with debt, uh, but we are not for profit. And so if, if you've ever found Khan Academy useful or family members have, uh, don't hesitate to donate because we definitely need that support to keep doing what we're doing. Cool. Excellent. Hey, Thank thanks, you man. so much. I couldn't no, help it. That has to stay. Really well, I'm going to keep it, but then I apologize. I might delete the apology. <laughs> The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.